So um, I've been doing a series of teachings on manifestation, how to get your prayers answered or how to manifest miracles and all kinds of stuff. And I had a direction I was going to go, started talking about the use of your imagination, creative imagination last week. And the Lord just gave me a different message. So I want to talk to you this morning about getting over the guilt. So just look at somebody and just tell them, get over the guilt. And the reason this is important is because it's an important key to manifestation. I want you to get that in your mind. Getting over guilt is important to getting your prayers answered, and it is an important key to manifestation. And here's why. We all know that guilt is a destructive emotion, right? It really doesn't serve any purpose. People who want power over us will try to make us feel guilty to get us to do what we want, uh, what they want us to do. Uh, started with maybe for some of you, Sister Mary in the Catholic school, if you were brought up in a parochial school, or maybe some of you had parents that were good at the guilt or whatever, teachers. But we use it in our society as a currency to get what we want. But when you're the recipient of guilt or the carrier of guilt, it really does not serve any helpful purpose. I mean, we can all kind of agree on that, right? But here's where guilt is hiddenly, I'll make a new adverb up, hiddenly destructive, or where guilt can be hidden in your life and be destructive. It can prevent you from manifesting something because you feel like you don't deserve it, or you feel guilty for even wanting it or asking for it. Anybody... Know where I'm coming from. Okay, I'm talking to about three people this morning. You're going to be blessed. Um, So that's how I'm tying it in with manifestation. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of history on me. So I was raised in a family uh, that was very, um, I mean, they they instilled very uh, strong values in us. We were taught to value hard work. We were taught to value education. We were taught to value morality and honesty and things of this nature. And most of, a lot of that, not all of it, I give my dad a hard time because uh, there were some areas where he and mom didn't agree on what was uh, moral. But my mom really was the driving force behind that. I mean, my mom was just the most honest, integrous person just about that I've ever known. And one of the things you got to understand about my mom is she grew up in a family that they went to the Methodist church, but it was just because they had a falling out with the Baptist church. And so my grandfather, what's my great grandfather actually built, literally built Park Hill Baptist Church here in Pueblo was the the carpenter that built the building, but also built the church. My grandfather's sister played the organ pretty much up until uh, almost until she couldn't do it anymore. And she died at 90 something. So even to this day, I talk to people that went to that church. They know my aunt. And so uh, they were very much teetotalers. And my mom had this thing about um, language, right? Like, I got my mouth washed out with soap a lot. And, and I got my mouth washed out with soap for saying, uh, gosh darn it. Because if you say, gosh darn it, it's close enough to taking the Lord's name in vain that that was inappropriate in our house. Now, we'd actually progressed through a generation. That was actually progress. Because my mom was raised, 
by ranchers, basically, uh, dairy farmers. And so they had lots of cattle and, you know, she grew up uh, doing that stuff. And so they had cattle and bull was a bad word. You couldn't say bull. So she had to call the bull the judge. Now, now there also was not a appropriate term for excrement um, because manure was considered to be a bad word in her house. So if you were going to say bull, you had to say judge fertilizer. <laughs> It's the only appropriate way to say it. So, right? Look at my sister. So I'm just trying to give you an idea how I was raised. And so then when uh, I turn, you know, 19 years old and I get around this group of really radical, lovely, wonderful people who drug me to the Assembly of God Church in Alamosa. Uh, like I said, I was raised Methodist, but we start going to the Assembly of God Church in Alamosa. And I found out everything was a sin. Everything was a sin. Uh, and so, you know, we had our lists of do's and don'ts, sort of. And so you had the basic list that everybody kind of agreed on, and that included, like, no drinking, no smoking or chewing tobacco, no cussing, which I already kind of grew up with that. Uh, all forms of sexual desire were off limits because, you know, Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. So you're single. So that is just completely off limits. And we were like obsessed with staying away from that. So much so that dancing was a sin. Um, <laughs> that's, why, that's why Puritans didn't like sex because they were afraid it would lead to dancing. Um <laughs> Secular music was a sin. Some of you, you can't relate to this, I'm sure. But so for me, I really liked secular music, you know, and then I found out it's all evil. It's all from the devil. And, and so some of it, like maybe the words going forward were bad and you could say, okay, yeah, that's promoting, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, Satanism, whatever. So, okay, I could see cutting that out. But, but no, <laughs> there, this was back during the days of the moral majority. You know, how many of you remember that? And so they did this whole thing that went before Congress about all these songs that were backmasked. You know what backmasking is? For those of you that don't know what backmasking is, let me educate you. It's when there's absolutely nothing wrong with the lyrics when they're going forward. But if you run them backwards, and we had turntables back then. I know some of you don't know what that is. Some of you, most of you do, right? And so you could take the turntable and you could turn it backwards. And it had evil messages going backwards. And so songs like the, the most popular one was Stairway to Heaven, right? Which is one of the top, you know, rock and roll songs of all time, right, on a lot of lists. And so if you ran Stairway to Heaven backwards, it sounded like they were saying, My Sweet Satan. Does anybody remember that or no? Okay, a couple of you, a few of you, okay. And then there was one that the Beatles did that was like, that turned me on Dead Man or something. And, and then, I don't know, something about, a, a, oh, it was a Queen. Uh, another One Bites the Dust. Remember that song, Another One Bites the Dust? You run it backwards and it says, I love to smoke marijuana. And so that's what we did for entertainment at youth group. You know, we, could, we couldn't have we couldn't have secular music. We couldn't go to the movies. We couldn't do any of that stuff. So we just get the records out and play them backwards and be like, ooh, you know, because because somehow if there was a backward message on it, that just made it inherently evil. So we burned, and that, that was the thing. You couldn't, because you couldn't like you couldn't take it to you know the used bookstore because then you're defiling someone else. 
Are you guys tracking with me? And so we burned them, right? <laughs> so secular music was bad. And then I get a hold of this group that says, no, 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 this was, how many of you ever went to a Bill Gothard seminar? Ah, I see a couple of you. Bill Gothard. Yeah, so Bill Gothard's thing was even Christian rock music is from the devil because it has a certain beat, and that beat is demonic. And, and I remember showing videos of, you know, some tribe somewhere doing a, something with a drum, and that drum sounds just like this drum beat over here, so it's all from the devil. So we couldn't even listen to Christian rock music. Uh, reading any kind of books, literature, like, was not good. So, like, if you had Stephen King books, you had to definitely had to burn those. Um, Lord of the Rings, you know, was not good. Uh, later on, it was Harry Potter, right? Remember the whole campaign against Harry Potter? You're poisoning your kids with witchcraft if you let them read Harry Potter. And then, um, uh, and so, you know, all that stuff was off limits as well. So that only Christian stuff was acceptable, only Christian books, and then only certain Christian books. How about men having long hair and women having short hair? was uh, a sin. Tattoos were a sin. Movies were just out. Right? Unless it was some Christian movie that was low budget and that you could go and support. Right? Um, Television programs were no good, especially if they came on after 9 (laughs) o'clock. Now, this is one of my personal favorites, and you have to forgive me, but certain styles of dress, especially for the women, were inappropriate in church, right? So if you showed a shoulder or you showed a knee, you were a hoe. (laughs) Come on, help me out, ladies. (laughs) Those of you that are just coming in, (laughs) I apologize. You'll have to get the rest of it. (laughs) We'll talk later. Um, But right, so if the woman's skirt is too short or, you know, she's got a sleeveless dress or something, she's a hoe. And so we pull her aside. So then we softened it up. No, 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 no. We just pull her aside and we say, now, honey, you're causing the brothers to stumble. So you got to cover up because it's just not right to cause the brothers to stumble. And I got to be honest with you, ladies, if, if you're, if your uh, kneecap or your little bit of cleavage that you're showing is causing your brothers to stumble, I got news for you. They're stumbling all week long in front of the computer, in front of the television, <laughs> wherever else they could stumble and you ain't nowhere around. So remember the title of the message is let go of the guilt, right? Um, certain subjects of study were completely off limits. When I started getting my degree in psychology, my overseers at the time had a canary, had a fit, because that was, uh, that was something that came from the devil. And so if you were going to study psychology and how the mind works, uh, you know, that had to be totally off limits for that. Um, and the list could go on, right? We all had our own lists depending on the strictness of our upbringing. And the more strict you were, the more holy you were. The more strict you were, the more committed you were. And the more strict you were, now this is the funny part, the more strict you were, the more your light shone. Because the more you stood out from the world, right? Yeah, a lot of people were drawn to that light. I'm just saying. See, one of the things that, that happened to me was I started thinking critically about stuff instead of just taking what I was taught and say, okay, that must be right. Now, here's the thing. It's been proven historically, sociologically, 
and now by neuroscientists, even biologically, that when pleasure in and of itself becomes immoral, violence becomes acceptable. No better, you don't have to look any further than the Puritans. Now, the Puritans, now we tell these romantic stories. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, why do I get to do these messages? The, <laughs> the, the, we tell these romantic stories about the pilgrims coming across, and, you know, and, and that's where our Thanksgiving holiday and being founded as a Christian nation and stuff. But what you don't realize was Puritans were starting wars in England. Because they wanted to purify the Church of England from all the remnants of Catholicism. And they were very violent, bloody people. And so they got kicked out of England and landed in the New World. And they brought their bloodshed with them, all uh, massacring native tribes. Just thought you'd like to know that. Um, and then, of course, you know the, the stories of the Salem witch trials, which most of you probably don't realize started over a pastor's salary. Just let that sink in. Um, and so what I'm saying is, is you had this group that rejected all forms of pleasure and yet became very violent. And so that's been proven throughout history. And it's been proven uh, even in brain science that when you do that, it activates anger. And why wouldn't it, right? And all kinds of violent tendencies in and of yourself. And the thing is, is you end up projecting evil out there instead of looking in here, Right? So, with all of that in mind, so I'm just letting you know that's my journey. You know, that's kind of where I, where I came from. And so that you don't... Anyway, um, so now we're going to depart from the ordinary. So come with me to Acts chapter 10. And so, again, I want to talk to you this morning about getting over the guilt. And I'm not talking about getting over guilt for things you've done wrong. I'm talking about getting over the guilt for things you've done that you thought were wrong but weren't. Acts 10 verse 9. It says, and noon the following day, as they, the Gentiles, were on their journey to meet Peter, and they were approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time and said, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, really listen to that statement. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. See, here's the point. Peter wants... Peter has a desire. Peter has a hunger. Peter wants something that's going to satisfy that desire. And God gives him a vision of all of this provision that is out there in the world. But because of Peter's moral upbringing, he refused to satisfy that hunger. Now, to us, this does, it's hard for us to relate to this because we don't understand really the dynamics and the culture of being Jewish in the first century. So you've got to understand that being Jewish in the first century, eating bacon was a horrible, horrible, horrible sin. 
So, so here's the point. So, so Peter's, let me put it modern for you. Peter's hungry and it comes down and there's bacon and there's barbecue pork and there's ham and there's, uh, Peking duck and there's crab legs with butter over here and there's shrimp cocktail over here and there's lobster over here. Yeah, I know. You, 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 you getting it? You getting it? Right, 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 right. Now there was reptiles there too, so who knows, but. It, it, <laughs> I've heard some people eat rattlesnake. I mean, I don't know. But you, you, you get the point, right? And, and then God says, slay me. But what we don't understand was it was a bigger sin to eat bacon back then than it was to commit adultery. That's how serious it was. And it's hard for us to relate to that because we don't understand the subjectivity of morality. Now, here's my point. If I could take you back to Genesis, but I don't have time this morning. I ran over 20 minutes in the first service. If I could take you back to Genesis chapter 1, say verse 31 or 32, you would discover that that all the way through Genesis chapter 1, I've I've tried stating this before and every time I do, people look at me like, huh? But but just watch this. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates something. God sees what he's created and he calls it good. He calls it good because he saw it. Not because he created it. He creates it. He sees it. He calls it good. And then on the last verse there of chapter 1, it says, God looked and surveyed and beheld everything that he had made and said, Behold, it is very good. Are you tracking with me? So God, when he looks out from himself and sees what out, out there, he says, All of it's good. Adam, when they eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, everybody say knowledge. Because you see, it was the knowledge of good and evil that caused death, not good, not good and evil in and of itself. Because how could evil exist when God had looked at everything that he created and called it good? It was the subjectivity of the knowledge that was the problem. See, I know, I guarantee you, and this is not an arrogant statement, this is a nerdy statement. You know what a nerd is, right? It's not somebody that wears pocket protectors and glasses. It's somebody that knows a lot of information about stuff that nobody cares about. (laughs) That's actually the definition of a nerd. (laughs) So my nerd factor is higher than yours. Way higher when it comes to this kind of stuff. So I promise you, I know more about Scripture, how we got the Bible. I know more about the history of Christianity, the development of Christianity, and the different ways that different Christians think around the world than anybody else in this room promise you that is completely subjective to me it's not objective it's knowledge that i've gained for myself so it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was the problem so here's the problem when god looks at everything he sees everything and says it's very good when adam eats at the tree and his wife eats at the tree now they look and what god said was good they now say is evil mostly themselves Their bodies, their nakedness, covering themselves. What they heard before is the voice of God walking in the garden, which was good, now has become evil, so they hide themselves from the voice of God. And ultimately, Adam blames God for the problem because he says, it's the woman that you gave to be with me. She's the reason that we're in this mess. And so he projects evil where there isn't evil. And so in the new covenant, when God is reversing the fall, one of the first things he does is show Peter a vision and has Peter hunger, have desire for something that God created and called good. And God tells him, Peter, what God has made clean, don't call it impure. 
So we're going to look at some things that not you as an individual, but some things that Christianity as an institution has taught where we have subjectively through our own subjective cultural denominational knowledge of good and evil called things unclean that God has made pure. Is that okay? So that we can let go of the guilt so we can feel better about ourselves and we can enjoy life. See, Jesus came to bring a life-affirming message, not an otherworldly message. Jesus never said, suffer through this life and you'll get the kingdom of heaven when you die. Jesus said, as a matter of fact, the kingdom of heaven is right now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is close. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, that I have come, that the thief has come. And the thief is not the devil. The thief, if you read it in context, is religion. He's talking to the religious teachers and the legalists and the Pharisees of the day and saying they are the thief and they come to steal, they come to kill and they come to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So therefore, Jesus was the original life affirmer and he wanted us to be actively involved in and enjoying and having abundant life. And he's exposing to us that it is religious ideology that cuts us off from life. I'm preaching a whole lot better. We're in shock. You, uh, baby, you, uh, you ain't even felt shock yet. Because the first thing we're going to talk about is sex. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Again, Christianity. Now, the Bible itself forbids in several places what is what is translated as sexual immorality. Now, here's the problem with that. That in and of itself is a subjective term. Because it's so generalized, how do you define it? It's not as simple as you think it is. And even translators who go back into the Greek are not certain about what it is, but more than likely, the word in the Greek, here's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about sexual exploitation. Because again, the Bible has to be read in its culture. So you have to understand that it was very common for Romans to have boys who were house slaves who were objects of their sexual gratification. That would qualify as sexual immorality. It was common. Women had no rights to themselves, no property rights, and they really had no rights to their own bodies. So therefore, all kinds of uh, sexual activity was an exploitation. It wasn't consensual, in other words. But it gets translated as sexual immorality in our Bibles. And so what we end up doing is we end up throwing anything that we subjectively think that is wrong underneath that label. Are you breathing? Now, the church early on was very suspicious of sexuality and they exalted abstinence. Everybody say abstinence. That means completely not even within marriage. Let me give you some examples. Why do you think it is that priests do not marry? Why do you think it is if a woman wants to be a nun and choose a holy life, she does not marry? Why is it that the Virgin Mary is exalted almost to the place of divinity, but only if she, if she maintains her perpetual virginity? Some of you aren't Catholic in here. You don't know what Catholics believe. 
Why is it that, the, that certain church traditions will not remarry a person who's been divorced? And why is it that in one particular very prominent Pentecostal denomination that shall remain unnamed by me? You cannot be a minister or a clergy if you have been divorced and remarried. Okay, so here's the thing about sex. You ready? It was God's idea. In fact, it, it was such a big idea of God's that none of you got here without it. <laughs> without somebody having it. Such a big idea that you came built for it. And in fact, it's the first thing that determines your social identity. <laughs> is it a boy or is it a girl? What she have? Your name, typically. Now, I know there are some, you know... What do you call them? Unisex names or whatever, right? But as a rule, you have boys' names and girls' names. So I hate to tell you this. Every time, if you're in that category, every time somebody calls your name, they're announcing which side of the sexual aisle you're on. It's such a big deal to God that every living thing in creation is having it from the birds to the bees. Are you in shock yet? There was silence in Pueblo, Colorado for a space of 30 minutes. And check this out. He made it fun. He made it feel good. And he gave you chemicals to make you desire it. Like built into your brain. Now here's the part I hate to break to you. This is where critical thinking comes in. Your Bible is full of sex. <laughs> Now, we, okay, so we hold up in modern Christianity the ideal of biblical marriage, the biblical marriage, the biblical idea of marriage is that between one man and one woman. How often have we heard that? And yet, do you realize that most advice about marriage is not found in the book of Genesis, and it's not found in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. Most of the advice about marriage is found, in fact, in the book of Proverbs. And do you know who wrote the book of Proverbs? It was Solomon. And Solomon was not into marriage between one man and one woman because he had 700 wives. No wonder he was such an expert. Now, I'm not advocating for polygamy because I do marriage counseling. And it's hard enough to do marriage counseling with one man and one woman. I can't even imagine a session between one man and 700 wives. My God, how many appointments do you have to make? I want to give marriage counseling. Okay, well, I got an hour. No, 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 no. An hour's not going to cut it. Well, how about a marriage retreat weekend? Well, I don't know. I could probably get 20 in. Could you imagine doing family systems therapy with 700 wives and 300 concubines? <laughs> Never been to a marriage seminar where they didn't at least feel like they had to talk about sex. And they turned to one specific book in the Bible, the Song of Solomon. <laughs> uh, Solomon again, by the way. <laughs> Full of sexual... Imagery on its base, both basic, on its most basic level, it is about a love affair. 
Now, here's the interesting thing about the history of the Song of Solomon. You, you're free to have any idea about what you think God's trying to accomplish by putting the Song of Solomon in the Bible. You're free to have any idea you want. But here's the truth about it. Here's the history about it. Because sexuality in the ancient world, it was almost, it, because it was so sexually permissive, uh, there was almost an overreaction to sexuality by the fourth century, right? Which is why you had abstinence. In fact, what most people don't realize is that by the second century, it was very common. Everybody say common. It was very common for men who converted to Christianity to castrate themselves. And the Jews thought circumcision was bad. Because they were trying to eradicate all sexual desires. Now, I wonder how that evangelized among the brothers. I'm just curious. So it was around that time period that people first began to look at the Song of Solomon as an allegory between God and Israel or between Christ and the church. And most people do such a poor reading of the Song of Solomon that they don't realize that the actual story, the actual romance in the Song of Solomon is not between the king and his bride. It is between the king and a conquest who is denying him so she can go find her real love who is a shepherd boy out in the hills. Take that home and think about it. All right, anyway, moving right along. People get nervous when you start talking about, oh, you're giving people sexual license. And yes, there are dangers with sexual license. But what about the dangers of sexual suppression and repression? People don't talk about that. I know personally, not talking about myself, just so you know that. Sometimes people say I have a friend. They're talking about themselves. I'm talking about a friend. who became OCD as a teenager for feeling sexual attraction towards women because Jesus said, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. And so he was just sure because, and listen, he's wired by God to think that way, to see a woman. I I hate to disappoint you. I hate to disappoint you, religious people, but God wired men. I don't know about women. I can't speak to that. I haven't studied it, and I ain't one. But God wired men to look, to see a woman and have a chemical response in the brain that says, hey, that might be fun. And it's stronger when you're a teenager. And so can you imagine thinking that is going to send you to hell? Eternal conscious torment. And so I have a friend who developed a very serious case of OCD and anger and even violent behaviors because he was denying the own, his own biology that was created by God because of the dangers of sexual suppression. What about misogyny and oppression against women in the church? You do realize that, again, early on, women were seen as a fount of evil because, again, men were wired that way. But because the church had taught them to reject and suppress their, their sexuality, women were oppressed. That's why in other cultures that did not repress sexuality, it is not uncommon to have priestesses as well as priests. Because in the pagan world, they didn't do that. So it was no problem having women who could be spiritually sensitive and have positions of leadership. 
In the uh, in some of the Eastern cultures, same thing. Or in Celtic Christianity, one of the reasons that Celtic Christianity was suppressed by Rome was because the the powers that be in Rome were ticked off because Pelagius, one of the leaders of the Celtic Church, was teaching and empowering women to minister. But see, they didn't have all those that negative baggage about sexuality. So there, because here's what happens, because men are wired that way and because it's a sin, they think the woman is causing it. And so the way they suppress their sexual desire is by suppressing women, which is exactly why it's evangelical and Pentecostal churches that are so far behind the times in terms of, of, of empowering women that we still have egalitarianism taught as God's model for marriage, even though it's proven to be a total and complete failure at making relationships work. You know what egalitarian? is I'm the man, you're the woman, you're going to submit and do what I want because you revolve around me because you're a help me for me. And a woman can't minister unless she has some kind of covering. So if she's divorced, she can't minister. So then, so then I guess the pastor becomes the covering and that all has to do with sexuality and it's no wonder there's so much immorality in the church. All right, let's move on from that. (laughs) Let's talk about wealth. Wealth. Come with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Somebody say, let go of the guilt. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Let me say that again. Put your trust in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Notice he didn't say, command those who are rich to sell all they have and give to the poor. Notice he didn't say, command those who are rich to support the church building program. Notice he didn't say, command those who are rich to make sure the gospel goes around the world. What's he say? He says, command those who are rich, don't become arrogant and think you're better than everybody else just because you have money. And don't put your trust in riches, put your trust in God who richly gives you everything for your enjoyment. See, I was taught in Christianity, you could only have what you needed. See, in our culture, we're taught to feel guilty. That's why manifesting stuff can be difficult if you're stuck in guilt. Because you feel guilty for having wealth. You feel guilty for wanting wealth. I got news for you. Now, here's an interesting statistic. Um, A person who's growing up uh, as, as a pioneer, let's say before the television, before radio. Let's just go back that far. The person who was growing up would be exposed to less information in their entire lifetime than is contained in one issue of the New York Times. In other words, you'd go your entire life and be exposed to less information than one daily circulation of the New York Times. Here's the thing. You were not psychologically wired to carry the burden of the problems of the whole world. So prior to, you know, a couple hundred years ago, it wasn't this deal with, you better clean your plate because there's people starving in Africa. Because they didn't know there was people starving in Africa. So you feel guilty if you don't clean your plate, and then you feel guilty if you're overweight in our culture. 
You see it? So we feel guilty for having things. And the more compassionate you are, the more guilty you're going to feel probably for having something. Because you're going to have compassion for people who have less than you. And so that's going to prevent you from enjoying what you have. So neither of you are enjoying. So how is the planet becoming a better place? How is the world becoming a better place? And how is humanity being enriched? Because you've got it, but you can't enjoy it because you feel guilty because they don't have it. So the one who doesn't have it isn't enjoying it, and the one who has it isn't either. All the while, God said, command those who are rich to understand it is God who gives us everything for our enjoyment. So it's okay to pray for and manifest and believe for a new car. It's okay to pray for and believe and manifest a better job. It's okay to believe for and manifest a bigger home that you don't need. It's okay to pray for and believe and manifest a nice vacation that you want to go someplace just so you can enjoy it. Like you talk to people, I remember people, you know, in the church, they bought a van and they got two of them or something, but they bought a van or they bought a truck and they say, well, I can use it to help people move or, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring people to church with it. Like we have to justify it or something. You, you know what I'm talking about? It's that guilt will prevent you from being able to get your prayers answered, prevent you from even asking for stuff, prevent you from dreaming. It's all about guilt and God doesn't want you to have it. It's calling something unclean that God is purified, calling something unclean that God is cleaned and we need to get that stuff out of our mindsets and out of our thinking. It's no wonder that uh, Christianity as it's been in our culture is dying because we, 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 have, we have robbed people of the enjoyment of life and we've blamed it off on God. And yet God wired us. You know what God wired us to do? If it feels good, do it. I'll qualify that in a second for those of you that need qualification because you want to hold on to your guilt. Throughout the Bible, prosperity is a sign of God's blessing. Originally, the gospel was good news to the poor. Good news to the poor isn't, hey, broke guy, you're going to stay broke because God wants you that way. (laughs) Giving is one of Gary Chapman. Okay, right. Back to marriage counseling. Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages. I remember we had to read that so you could help people through their marriages understand what love languages were. One of his five love languages is giving gifts. Wow, you mean you can give gifts not because they need it, but because you love them as an expression of love? Wow, that's revolutionary to some of us. It happens to be one of my love languages. So my kids love going, we, where do you guys want to go eat? If it's, if it's mom, they want to go to McDonald's because they can play and do all that stuff. If it's dad, they want to go to Cracker Barrel. Because they know they're going to shop after they eat and they're going to come home with a new toy. They just are. And I don't feel guilty about it. Oh, you're spoiling your kids? Nope. I love my kids. And giving is one of my love languages. And I have no problem giving to my kids. Because I think it's one of God's love languages. Because somewhere I heard, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, I think God's fluent in the love language of giving. One story in the Bible where Jesus told one guy to go and sell all he has and give to the poor, and we made it the standard for holiness for all rich people for all time. (laughs) You don't realize this, but early communism was not started by Karl Marx. Communism as a theory might have been articulated by Karl Marx, but there is nothing new under the sun. Early communism came out of Christianity. Well, come on, your nuns and your priests who are so holy they ain't having sex are living in communes. All right. 
It went over about like I thought it would. (laughs) Let's talk about wine and fermented beverage. Now remember, grandparents, great-grandparents, parents, teetotalers. Dad was not a teetotaler. We'd get in the car on Sunday morning. We would drive. Dad, we'd, we'd get in the garage at the same time. Mom and the kids would get in one car. Dad get in his car. We'd pull out the same driveway. We'd go down the same street. <laughs> we'd come to the same stop sign. We'd go about the same distance when we turned. One of us would turn right, and we'd end up at the little white church in Avondale. And <laughs> the other one would turn left and end up at the little white bar in Avondale <laughs> called Chuck's Place. We went to Avondale United Methodist Church. Dad went to Chuck's Place. We got not filled with the Spirit. He got filled with the spirits. <laughs> we wanted out by noon. Dad didn't go into home until about two. <laughs> so, you know, full disclosure. In the interest of full disclosure. But as I traveled, as I began to travel, so I was taught, you know, don't touch the stuff. Devil's drink, whatever. Stay away from it. Abstain. But what we don't, so, so as I began to travel around the world, Poland, Eastern Europe, Africa, different places, Western Europe, I remember when I first noticed it, we went to Austria. <laughs> we go to Austria and we sit down and we're with a, this large team of, of ministers that had gone over there to train leaders in Austria. And every single one of the American pastors had Coke. Every single one of the German-speaking pastors had beer for dinner. And I'm like, hey, what's up with this? Then I went to Africa with the team. And I stayed a little bit later in the team. And we go out to drink. And in drinking in Africa is not cool. Because you can't trust the water. You just can't. Because um, they're impoverished, right? So you get it out of a bottle, but you don't know what that, that wasn't refilled with tap water when you go to the restaurants. So they tell you don't drink the water. So you drink pop. So they have orange pop. Or this stuff called bitter lemon that you can get in like eight ounce bottles. And so I'm drinking Coca-Cola and bitter lemon all week long with the American pastors and all the, the Kenyan pastors. And then the American pastors leave and it's just me. And I guess maybe I appear more laid back. I give off a certain vibe or something. I go out to eat with them. They're all drinking beer and they bring out beer, you know, that's this size. And so I realized this is strictly an American phenomenon. And you know why? Because we have a hangover from prohibition. The church in America has a hangover from prohibition. It was not a part of Christian teaching. I hate to disappoint you, but Martin Luther and all the, those guys that were, you know, doing the Reformation, they were talking theology in the tavern over bottles of beer. And there was silence in Pueblo for the space of it. Am I boring you? So prohibition was started by a women's movement that basically had more to do with women's oppression than it did with uh, alcohol because women, men would go out and get drunk and they'd beat their wives. And so in order to stand up for themselves, they said, let's get rid of the alcohol because it's causing all this domestic violence issues, right? But unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at it, the Bible nowhere, nowhere in the Bible does it teach total abstinence from alcohol. The ideas, even among the um, abolitionists, did not come from Scripture. Admittedly, by the movement, it came from a Greek philosopher named Xenophon. 
who stated whatever is good should be used only in moderation and whatever is bad should be avoided altogether. So alcohol is bad, so it should be avoided altogether. So we legislated it in our country. Now, in fairness, there are scriptures in the Bible that warn about alcohol abuse. So, for example, let's read, and I'll just read to you. Proverbs 23, 29, and 30 says this. Proverbs 23, verse 29 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Kind of sounds like a hangover. Those who linger over the wine, linger over the wine, and who sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. But that's the person who lingers long. There are other verses in the Bible, like Deuteronomy 14, 26. I'll read that one to you. Deuteronomy 14, verse 26 says, Use the silver. This was part of your tithe. You never heard this on TBN. This, this came from your tithe or in the offering message. Use the silver... To buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Psalm 104 verses 14 and 15. Because see, what you got to realize is that throughout the Bible, wine is seen as a blessing from God. Not something that he's obsessing over about how much you drink and making little check marks so that when the books are opened at the end of the day, everybody sees it on judgment. Anyway, Psalm 104, verse 14. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for the people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts. I don't think he's talking about grape juice. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. Alcohol consumption, bottom line, it's not a moral issue in the sense that, like I said, God's up there obsessing over how much you drink and trying to find out who's been naughty or nice with it. It is not a right, wrong, good, bad, or good or evil issue in that sense. It is a personal choice. In other words, take the morality out of it, take the good, bad out of it, take the good, evil out of it, and just make a smart choice. There are tons of people who can manage and drink responsibly who don't even think about whether or not it's right or wrong. If you have a proclivity to alcoholism, if you can't stop after one or two, it's a problem for you. And you want to know how to define alcoholism? Alcoholism is not defined in the amount of time you spend lingering. It's in the amount of problems you start accumulating because of your consumption. So when you start getting DUIs, when you start having health problems, when it starts creating relationship problems for you, then you've got a problem that you need to look at. But you can look at the consequences in your life and make a choice that has nothing to do with whether or not does God think it's okay for me to do this. Simple, right? 
See, just think, just live, just make wise choices about your life and leave everybody else alone. I was studying the Puritans. There was a joke they made about the Puritans. They said in, in, you know, in heaven, heaven is a place where everybody minds their own business. Therefore, when the Puritans get there, they're going to think it's hell. Okay. Alcohol abuse has consequences for sure, but the wrath of God is not one of them. All right, last one, because I know there are a few of you that still like to offer burnt offerings before the Lord. Let's talk about tobacco. Tobacco use. Now, here's the deal about tobacco. Tobacco has a mild effect on the brain, right? Just like coffee. Probably less than monster drinks. Does smoking cause cancer? There is actual debate about whether it's the actual tobacco or the additives like tar and all the other junk that they put in the tobacco and the cigarettes that they sell that causes the problem of cancer. Again, it's a personal choice. In most cultures of the world, tobacco is seen as a sacred plant. When my dad, my dad smoked for 50 some odd years. He tried, see, here's the thing about smoking, and here's why I'm on this. I'm not encouraging you to go out and buy a pack of cigarettes. But here's what I'm saying. It is one of the hardest things in the world to kick for somebody who starts. And so the judgments that we have a tendency to put on them as a church has to stop. Not us. I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying it has to stop. I mean, educate your kids about it. Don't guilt them into it so that they don't do it. Because guilt is just you trying to manipulate in order to control. That's all it is. It doesn't come from God. And it doesn't have lasting effects. I did all kinds of stuff that my mom tried to make me feel guilty about and never promoted change for me. Am I the only one in the room? No teenager on the planet ever got lectured and said, Mom, Dad, wow, I see the wisdom in what you're saying. I think I'm going to make a change. Like, that never happened. Like, like if your teenager did it, capture him, because it's a unicorn, and we need to study him to find out how that works. But as a church, we try to lecture people. And so I'm just saying, look, tobacco can be one of the hardest things in the world for people to quit. And when, when I was doing stuff with recovery with people, I knew people who had kicked meth. I knew people who had kicked heroin. I knew people who had kicked uh, 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 alcoholism. But they couldn't quit smoking. I, I knew one person I was working with them, and if they were going to quit smoking, they were smoking to manage their anxiety because their anxiety levels were so high. And if they quit smoking, they were going to have a nervous breakdown. So if I'm going to moralize them, it's better for them to have a nervous breakdown than take the chance that they might get cancer from smoking. 25, 30 years from now. Which would you rather do? (sighs) So just chill out on it. I can guarantee you one thing. Smoking will not send you to hell, but you might smell like smoke when you get to heaven. (laughs) (laughs) At least you'll smell like it on the way. (laughs) And some people dig the smell of cigars, pipes, whatever. I don't care. 
Not my deal. I'm just saying, be empowered to make personal choices. Don't call something unclean that God has purified. Be empowered to think for yourself. Be empowered to be different. Be empowered to think critically and be empowered to make personal choices that are going to allow you to enjoy your life. That are going to allow you to have life and that more abundantly. And make sure it's your choice, not somebody else's choice that you assimilated because you felt guilty. So the church creates whole cultures by putting things out and trying to get everybody to eat it and assimilate it so that we can all be alike, so that we can all feel better than everybody else. See, what you don't understand about Peter's vision was this. Ultimately, what God's telling him is he's saying, you're looking at the Gentiles and calling them unclean when I have cleansed them. He's basically telling Peter, don't look for the darkness where I have put light. And don't look for the light, for dirt, where I have made pure. He's not talking about food. They were making dinner downstairs. He couldn't eat trance food anyway. Some of you didn't get that. He fell into a trance. I mean, that lobster looks really good, but it's probably not going to fill him up. (laughs) Just saying, he had to have that kosher kosher pickles or whatever they were making (laughs) downstairs. That the rabbi said, oh, yes, that's okay, you can eat it. I guess the rabbi wouldn't be making a sign across. That was a joke about the priest, the rabbi, and the imam. So, anyway. <laughs> Say, look, I put stuff in the Gentiles. Don't call them unclean. And see, we, we unfortunately, unfortunately, the, the parts of Christianity that I float in, we looked at people who smoked and drank and cussed and chewed and those that ran with those that did and they're the world and we judged them and we put all kinds of stuff on them and God's saying look what I've purified don't call unclean and so our hearts aren't open to people who think differently than us our hearts aren't open we're there to persuade them we're there to convert them we're there for whatever God never told Peter go convert the Gentiles He said, go eat with them. Go associate with them. Go fellowship with them. Don't be afraid of them. And don't refuse to associate with them because you have moralized something that God has not moralized. Does that make sense? Does that help you? Just one last thing. Statistically, by far, every church in America, almost around the world, but definitely in America, every church, there are more women who attend than men. It wasn't always that way. You know when that statistic changed? When prohibition was put in place. So we're losing people because we've called things unclean that God said we're clean. We're losing young people who want nothing to do with it because we're painting a vision of life that is for the afterlife that's no fun. And we need to quit it. (laughs) Amen? Are you breathing? I told you you never heard a message like this before in church. Let's stand up. So yeah, I feel sorry for you. I really do because I was was caught in that. I mean, really. I'm I'm not trying to, I mean, I'm trying to help you. I was caught in that no fun zone of 
Christianity, where the only pleasure that was acceptable was some pleasure that you got from God. That was otherworldly, like getting drunk in the Holy Spirit. Okay to get drunk in the Holy Spirit and act like a fool. (laughs) That was okay. You know what I'm saying? But God created everything for our enjoyment, and we, we need to be engaged in life. We don't need to be just pursuing the other. Listen, you got 70, 80 years at best, 90, maybe 100 years in this life. You've got all eternity to explore the heavens and have spiritual experiences and whatever else. We need to become a people who are involved in life and understand that there are things that, that, that God wants us to enjoy this physical existence. And it's okay. And you need to let go of the guilt. And you need to mind your own business. <laughs> and you need to be empowered to make personal choices and empower other people to make their personal choices. Amen. That's a pretty good agreement to have. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your people. Love them. Bless them. Pray that you'll liberate us and set us free. Father, I pray that that virus of guilt that gets inside our lives, that gets inside our hearts, that robs us of freedom, that robs us of joy, that that robs us of life would be destroyed by the power of your love and by the power of your truth. And I give you thanks for it, and I bless it in Jesus' name. Amen.